In this episode of Data Framed, a Data Camp podcast, I'll be speaking with Roger Peng, professor in the Department of Biostatistics at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and co-founder of the Johns Hopkins Data Science Specialization. Roger is also a well-seasoned podcaster on not-so-standard deviations and the effort report. Today, we'll talk about data science, its role in researching the environment and air pollution, massive open online courses for democratizing data science, and much more. I'm Hugo Bound Anderson, a data scientist at DataCamp, and this is DataFund. Welcome to DataFrame, a weekly DataCamp podcast exploring what data science looks like on the ground for working data scientists and what problems it can solve. I'm your host, Hugo Bound Anderson. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugo Bound and DataCamp at DataCamp. You can find all our episodes and show notes at datacamp.com slash community, slash podcast. Hey, Roger, and welcome to DataFrame. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure to have you on the show, and I'm really excited to have you here to talk about data science, the environment, massive open online courses, the R ecosystem. Uh, But before all of that, I'd like to find out a bit about you. Uh, What are you known for in the data science community? Oh, this is a... (laughs) You should know this is a horrible question, right? Because <laughs> absolutely, that's why I open with it. <laughs> well, part of the problem is that I, I feel like I've been doing this for so long that like different segments know me for different for various things. So it's kind of hard to pin down a you know one or two things. But um, let's go through. I them. think you know some people. Most people probably know me because I work, I work at Johns Hopkins. I'm a professor of biostatistics there. I've been there for about twelve years now. So and uh, you know I do a lot of t- statistics research um, and. Um, and kind of teaching there. Um, more recently, I think people know, well, know me for kind of, I've been in R for a long time. I've been using R for over almost 20 years now. Uh, I've been a user. I've been a developer. I have, um, I used to contribute a lot to, you know, back when they had mailing lists. I mean, I think they still do, but it's not as active. And, uh, and now I, I teach these kind of massive open online courses in data science, which are heavily focused on R. And I think a lot of people have been exposed to me uh, you know, kind of in that manner, watching all of my videos and such. And then even more recently, I think um, I've been doing some podcasts. Uh, I have one podcast with Hillary Parker, who's at Stitch Fix. Uh, it's called Not So Standard Deviations. And um, so I'm always, obviously, I'm always excited to be on a podcast. <laughs> and, and I run a blog called Simply Statistics that I do with Jeff Leake and Rafael Irizarry. So um, depending on kind of where you entered my life, uh, you might know me for one of those three things. <laughs> And I think the first time we spoke, I told you that I actually took your uh, MOOC in the early months of January 2013, before the specialization actually existed. Yeah, that was my first interaction with R. Yeah, I think you got version uh, 0.1 of that, actually. It was inc- it was incredible. Well, and this many years later on, I'm at Data Camp. So it's always very gratifying to hear people say that. It's just exactly kind of what we want as many people as we can to kind of be exposed to R and to kind of learn data science. So it's it's great to hear that. So how did you get into data science initially? Oh, here you were going back quite a bit. Um, I mean, I, I I originally majored in math at university, and um, and I you know I, I to be honest, I wasn't. I'm not destined. I was not destined to be a mathematician, um, but as part of the math major, you had to take some statistics courses and probability courses, and uh, and uh, I really enjoyed those. And so I, although <laughs> I can say I, I can't say I did very well in those courses, but I really enjoyed them. And so I kind of decided that I was going to pursue that. I I briefly thought about maybe being a software engineer after college, but decided I didn't want to do that. So I decided I was going to go to graduate school and do a PhD in statistics. And so I went to UCLA 
to do my PhD. And, um, and that department at the time, it was a little unusual. It was very applied, very data-oriented, very data analysis-oriented department. And um, so I had a huge influence on me in terms of my education, in terms of my philosophy. And so that kind of it was kind of the roots of it all. And I think I've always kind of enjoyed data science and kind of data analysis, you know, from the, from the get-go. So that's kind of where things got started, I think. Yeah, and it sounds like during that time you were doing data science, just that term didn't necessarily exist. Well, <laughs> there are those that would argue that I think uh, there is, data science is just all those things. But uh, nevertheless, I think, I think I, I, I've been very influenced by kind of the people that I learned from at UCLA who kind of had this sense of, you know, you need to kind of take ownership of a whole problem to think about the questions being asked and to kind of how the data is collected and kind of to, to kind of understand the entire process uh, by which data is analyzed. So I think that has evolved now into a, this huge area of data science and machine learning. I love that you say you're not destined to be a mathematician or you weren't destined because my I went to grad school in pure math and I feel exactly the same about myself th- these days. So yeah, no, I mean, I took real, I took real analysis three times. So <laughs> all right, I think I got it on the third time. <laughs> How many times did you take complex analysis? Oh, that can be for another for another conversation. Yeah, I think so. I'm I'm really interested that you you worked uh, in, in in software engineering as well before moving in, in, into biostatistics or concurrently. What type of uh, role do you think your software engineering skills have played in in what you're interested in and how you approach your work now? Well, I think you know it it played a big role in my kind of career development uh, because I think you know at the when I first started out in statistics. The, the the idea that you it would be useful to have knowledge of software engineering was very unusual. Not many people had any training in kind of software engineering ideas or principles or practices. Uh, and of course, software engineering practices have evolved quite a bit over time. But even but there were kind of you know established uh, kind of best practices and things like that for developing software. Even you know in the kind of late nineties, early two thousands when I started out. And um and many few, very few people in statistics kind of had that kind of training. So I thought I was kind of a point of uh it was a, a as you would maybe say like a differentiating factor for me in terms of my ability to kind of develop software and kind of think about how things should be built and kind of to use that to kind of build tools. I think things are quite different now. There's a the the the, the kind of ideas of software development and software engineering are uh, permeate data science now. And um, and I think as a good thing, and I think it's and if you look at things like the tidyverse and in R and all these other kind of new recent developments, a lot of that is infused with the ideas of software engineering and software development, and I think it has changed the way we do data analysis for the better. So now you work in environmental biostatistics and you research the health effects of air pollution and climate change, for for example. What what are the major challenges facing these fields? So I think that one of the biggest challenges from the perspective of a statistician um, is that the the signal the signal to noise ratio in in this kind of problem is relatively low. Um, so air pollution, I think, is generally understood to be a, a harmful thing, a uh, harmful environmental exposure, but it's not something that just knocks you over dead, you know, in the middle of the street. It, the, the the connection between air pollution exposures and health outcomes is inherently kind of weak, right? But because Everybody is exposed. Everybody has to breathe, and every you know, and so the, there's a lot of uh, kind of this huge population exposure. It's a really important problem for you know for everyone across the world. So I think the inherent kind of weak signal in this kind of problem is makes it interesting to statisticians. Uh, and it, and it, what it requires then is 
in some areas, you know, gathering huge data sets. And in the work, a lot of the work that I've done, we've gotten huge administrative databases for health outcomes, looking at large networks of air pollution monitors and things like that, and trying to link them together. So there's a huge kind of uh, complex data management, data integration problem, just to be able to kind of get set up to answer this, this kind of question. In terms of the end game of, of this type of research, do you need to deal with, with policymakers and, and legislators as well? Is part of uh, your work, I, I suppose, is what I'm asking, to communicate these technical results where you've extracted the signal to affect policy? Yeah, so that's a big part of the kind of, of the endpoint of all this work, and especially in in many countries is that where they have environmental regulation, like in the United States, the policies are typically informed by the kind of the the latest and the and the best scientific evidence. And so, in the United States, for example, the Clean Air Act, the regulations that kind of govern in the air pollution standards, uh, specifically say that they have to be informed by science. And so, a lot of the work that we do. Uh, is where after we publish them in the journals, you know, they get fed into uh, the evidence base that is developed by you know, regulatory agencies, and we do a lot of discussion. We do a lot of talking to uh, environmental agencies, uh, public policymakers, uh, to understand kind of what is the margin of safety for kind of regulation and from air for, for air pollution exposure. And and what type of specific questions do you look at in in your research? So I'm I'm interested in kind of two facets of air pollution research. One is kind of the outdoor air pollution, so you, you know air pollution that you typically see outside if it's hazy. Uh, and another kind of air pollution is uh, indoor air pollution, which might be in people's homes, and that's of a very different nature. So I'm interested in right now. I'm interested in kind of the how air pollution. You know, it's a complex mixture of many different chemicals, and understanding kind of how that the chemical mixture or the nature of that pollution can be more or less harmful. Uh, because if we understand that a little bit better, we can understand how to intervene on it and how to kind of control the sources of pollution to kind of make it less harmful to human health. So that's one area that I'm interested in right now. Another area that I'm interested in is in the indoor environment, you know, where we have vulnerable people like children or the elderly uh, who are exposed to things like dust, to allergens and all kinds of you know, nasty things that could be in the home. And similarly, there's a question there of how can we intervene to modify the home environment to improve people's morbidity and to kind of uh, improve health uh, for people in, who, who spend time in the home, which can be a large percentage of their time in many cases. And I presume this is actually quite difficult because... A lot of the time in scientific research, we actually want to do experiments, right? Right, exactly. And I think one of the challenges with outdoor air pollution is that um, you can't just, you know, they're not... There are very few controlled experiments that you can do where you can, say, modify the level of pollution and see how people respond. I mean, it just doesn't really work that way. Sometimes you can you get lucky and there's like a, a power plant shuts down by accident or or maybe one city has the Olympics and so they do a traffic restriction or something like that. And then you can kind of observe almost as if it were an experiment. But for the most part, you have to do uh, you have to understand that there are lots of confounding factors and the modeling has to kind of account for that. And it can be a much more messy picture. And do uh, researchers in your discipline need to jump onto opportunities like that if one of those things ha happens, for example, hosting the Olympics? Yeah. So the, actually, the, I mean, the Olympics is one example of like a it's a it's a it's a regular occurrence now. I think in the last five or six Olympics, there's been an air pollution study in the, in the city where it occurred, and so it's um, things like that are with, that are planned. You know, many years in advance are great kind of opportunities. But other things to often are sometimes are opportunities. Sometimes you know there's environmental control regulation, but it doesn't get implemented at the same time in every location. So you can kind of see look at differences there. Sometimes there's um, 
there's like a power plant that gets shut if you know, people go on strike and so the power plant shuts down for example and uh so there's uh, there are opportunities for these kinds of natural experiments and you do kind of have to jump on them when they occur so you've spoken to a number of issues such as data being very complex and messy, uh, the signal-to-noise ratio being being low, and the difficulty of doing controlled experiments. I'm wondering how data science can help us solve these these challenges. Well, I think um, there are a lot of opportunities to um, for data scientists to kind of work in this area. One of the nice things about environmental research is that a lot of the data is public. And, and, and so the accessibility of the data is extremely high. And I think there's a lot of opportunities to, for, for data scientists to kind of look at specific questions in certain areas around the world. Um, often the data is collected by governments. And so that's, they, make, they, make, they will typically, some places better than others, make it publicly available. And so the network, the monitoring networks and things like that, are, are the data is usually available. In the United States, um, there's very detailed, kind of very interesting information about monitoring of pollutants across the country. So I think there are a lot of there's a lot of data that's basically just sitting there. I people like me work on it, but you know, there's not that many people not necessarily a ton of people in the academic world looking at this and I think there's a lot of opportunities for data sciences to kind of take this data and to answer kind of relevant questions uh, for whatever area they're in. How much domain expertise would a data scientist need to have in order to think about these types of questions? Because sure, the, the data is open, but are the techniques and, and methodologies highly sophisticated? Or do you think uh, data scientists working in other fields can, can come in to think about these types of questions? Well, you know, that kind of question, it really depends on what, what, what you're trying to answer. I think there are kind of, there are many levels of questions and, and some require a lot of domain knowledge and some don't. I mean, for example, if you look at, there's a kind of, a lot of interest in kind of citizen science type of work where people want to know, you know, what's the air pollution, you know, near my house or what's the air pollution in my neighborhood or in my town, right? And I don't think it doesn't require a PhD in physics to get, you know, a, the monitoring data kind of near where you live and see what the levels are and looking at trends over time and, and looking at monitors maybe in the neighboring town or, you know, things like that. So I think there's a lot of different kinds of questions that can be asked. And um, depending on how detailed or how kind of complex that question is, you know, will require certain types of knowledge. But I think there's a lot of work that can be done by having a kind of a, a, a basic understanding of how data, how the data is collected, how the monitoring works, and what pollutants, what the pollutants are, which can be there's a lot of information, for example, in the U.S. on kind of the EPA website that you, that can be kind of gathered there. So, and I, I presume that uh, prediction is a is a huge thing that that you need to be doing when when thinking about the effects of air pollution. Absolutely. In fact, that's one of the more kind of modern kind of innovations in air pollution work, uh, because in the past uh, we've always relied on kind of the raw data at monitoring locations, um, which is nice because that's observed and kind of it's tend to be high quality data. Uh, but we don't have monitors everywhere. In the, in the entire country. We typically have a few you know, scattered across each city. Uh, so the development of prediction models for pollution exposure has been a huge kind of benefit to the community because now we can develop these types of models that make predictions of air pollution exposure pretty much anywhere in the country. And of course, there's uncertainty associated with that, uh, but it allows us to kind of do much larger studies and much more comprehensive, to have much more comprehensive coverage across the U.S. And a lot of these models are interesting because they integrate lots of different kinds of data. There's just monitoring data, there's satellite data. Um, there's all kinds of land use data that we can. So these, so the integration of all these different data sets into these large prediction models has really been a huge kind of benefit to the field of air pollution research. And this is something you spoke to earlier when you stated that data management can can be a huge challenge. Absolutely, because I think you know you're looking at all kinds of formats. You know, you've got GIS data, you've got monitoring data. Everything is spatially kind of 
at different scales. And so you have to integrate things at different spatial scales. It's, it's a huge complex task and the people who can do it are, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a requires quite a few, quite a bit of technical skill uh, and understanding the different data formats and things like that. I'm sure. And when you talked about using these types of prediction models, without getting too technical, could you let us know what type of techniques you, you use or your collaborators or, or fellow researchers use? Yeah, I mean, I think it, there is a bit of a range in terms of what uh, how people approach these kinds of problems. You got people doing neural networks uh, to do pollution exposure, uh, or other people are doing kind of just very complex re- regression models. And so it's um, it's a little bit it, everyone's kind of got their favorite tool. But the one thing I've found uh, is that the you know the qual the the tool that we use is is not a, a major source of variation in terms of the quality of the models. And the reason is because everyone's kind of using the same data. Everyone uses the same monitoring data. Everyone uses the same satellite data. And most people use the same kind of land use, land use and land coverage data. And so the, because the data sources are, are almost identical across the different models, the, the variation in the accuracy of the models is relatively small, even though people are using different techniques. And you also used, uh, with respect to pr- prediction in particular, a word which is, I think, one of the most important and undervalued words in, in, in the modern data science and statistical landscape, which is uncertainty. Yes. Uh, and particularly <laughs> yeah. with respect to commu- like you make a prediction, right? And you, you really, I mean, a lot of people will give point estimates and not entire distributions or confidence intervals um, with respect to what type, what, what you're actually pr- predicting. Um, so how do you navigate the idea of, uh, I suppose, in essence, communicating uncertainty to stakeholders in whatever question you're, you're thinking about? Yeah, it's a critical, I mean, point to 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 recognize the uncertainty in in a lot of these modeling processes. And I think um it frankly, it's still an active area of research in terms of how do you integrate the uncertainty of these of these exposure models into the ultimate output, which is the kind of the assessment of risk from air pollution exposure. And there, you know, there are a variety of ways to think about that. One is just a traditional confidence interval, uh, which incorporates both the kind of statistical uncertainty of having just a finite data set, as well as the modeling uncertainty of having to predict exposure at various places. Um, so, how to incorporate, so incorporating those two sources of uncertainty into a single confidence interval kind of is one approach. Uh, but there are a variety of ways, there are still kind of different ways that are being thought of in terms of how to do this and what's the best modeling approach. Uh, so I would say it's, it's, it's still an active area of research. There's no final answer you know, yet. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And do some tools you find uh, and techniques help you describe uncertainty in a more communicable way? For example, um, Bayesian inference could allows people to, to give distributions as opposed to just, just confidence intervals. Yeah, I mean, I think various modeling techniques have their pluses and minuses. I mean, Bayesian techniques, as you mentioned, are is one nice uh, Bayesian techniques are they're one nice approach to kind of incorporate often to incorporate the many many sources of uncertainty that, and then you can kind of plot distributions. You can look at kind of these posterior distributions. Uh, one downside, of course, of that approach is that you have to have this grand unified model. Uh, and a lot of the results de- are dependent on that model being more or less correct. And so there's other kinds of, is- there are other issues that can be kind of brought in when you use certain techniques. And so, you know, th- there's no perfect solution. Uh, and, um, and some may be better for, for some situations than others. Let's now get into a segment called Stack Overflow Diaries with Kara Wu member of the RStats community and contributor to ggplot2. What's up, Hugo? Do you know the Python library Seaborn? Know it. I love it, and I use it daily. So for those of you who don't know, Seaborn is a library for visualizing data in Python. 
Conventionally, when you're importing the Seaborn library, people will write import Seaborn as SNS. This imports the functionality of Seaborn so that you can use it and aliases it to SNS so that you don't have to type out the whole word Seaborn every time you use a function from the Seaborn library. That's right. Aliasing in Python is both common and encouraged by many. Importing Pandas as PD and NumPy as MP are other typical examples. Yeah, this isn't really done in R, but it's super common in Python. Anyway, have you ever wondered why people use SNS as the alias for Seaborn? It seems like something like SBN would be more natural. Yeah, I was always curious as to why it was SNS. Well, Stack Overflow user Lucas posed this question, which I heard about from Twitter user Command Line Tips. It turns out that SNS are the initials of the character Sam Seaborn, middle name Norman, from the TV show The West Wing. So SNS is an inside joke that now pervades practically everyone's use of Seaborn. I have to admit, I've never seen the West Wing, but do you think Sam Seaborn would mind? I don't know what Sam Seaborn would have to say about this, but he does crack a statistics joke in at least one episode, so I'm guessing he'd be pleased. So Michael Wascombe, the creator of Seaborn, must be a diehard West Wing fan, right, to include a joke like this? Yeah, I think so. He's written several other Python libraries named after West Wing characters like Ziegler and Lyman. Lyman is a package for analyzing neuroimaging data in Python, and Ziegler is a web app for reporting results from Lyman. Well, there you have it, folks. Thanks once again, Kara, for reading us a page from your Stack Overflow diaries. Always a pleasure, Hugo. After that interlude, it's time to jump back into our chat with Roger. I want to pivot slightly in this conversation because we're talking about, as we discussed, these types of questions are really important to policymakers and and legislators. And there are lots of results coming from all directions in in the research landscape. And I know that a topic dear to your heart is is reproducibility in in science. So I'm wondering if this is, we hear that there's a reproducibility crisis in science a a lot of the time. And I'm wondering if this is something you see in in your field of research. Well, I think one of the... um benefits slash downsides of being uh, in the kind of air pollution area is that it is a in terms of the kind of impacts of the research it is a reasonably kind of high stakes area in the sense that lots of people do care about the topic lots of people care about the results of the findings that you come out with and so the work tends to have quite a bit of scrutiny and so that i think ultimately is a good thing first of all Obviously, people care, which is good. And also, because there's a lot of scrutiny in the work, there's a, it forces you to be rigorous in your thinking and to be transparent in the process. And so I think the idea of reproducibility in, within, with air pollution work and environmental work more generally is not unfamiliar in the sense that the work already from the get-go has had a lot of scrutiny. And I think that um, the other issue about the work is that um, because it's largely – an observational science, and we don't do a lot of controlled experiments. There is a mentality in in the kind of epidemiology area that is basically that we don't trust any results unless they've been replicated a number of times. Just because any observational study is going to have some sort of limiting factor, limiting kind of features, and so you have to replicate things over and over and over again before you really kind of want to stake any sort of claim on them. And so I think the natural skepticism of people in observational sciences is is useful because it prevents us from jumping on the latest hot finding and saying this is the you know this is the latest thing, this is the smoking gun or whatever. Um, and there's a certain amount of patience that's built into the field that requires certain interesting findings to be replicated at least a few times before 
you know, we accept them as fact. Yeah. And it sounds like a really important part of this is establishing a conversation, not just in publishing journal, journal articles, but actually talking with everyone as part of a community. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And kind of involving uh, more, more than just the academic researchers. I mean, there's constant discussion with policymakers and, uh, and researchers and, uh, and, and the various different stakeholders uh, kind of in the, the area at large. This brings me to another point, which is that you love to talk about data science. And, you know, this, is ov- this was obvious in 2013 when I, when I took your, your MOOC, and it's obvious when listening to your uh, p- podcast with, with Hillary. And it's, it's your, both of you are wonderfully c- contagious. And I'm wondering what the p- contagious in a positive way, what, what is the role of, of conversation and communication in data science at large to your mind? Well, first of all, I might, <laughs> it might just be that I love to talk. I don't know about data science in particular, <laughs> but uh, uh, <laughs> I, I think, I mean, I think communication and in particular, I think verbal communication is very important in data science. I think it's data analysis I, fa- I have found to be a, if I, a kind of a highly verbal endeavor. And I think when you talk about what you've done, even just to one person doesn't have to be some group or anything. Um, when you talk about what you've done and how you've done it, the it engages a process in your brain of kind of a, a different kind of analytic process in your brain that lets you think about what you've done and criticize it. And I think when you don't have those kinds of opportunities to communicate what you've done, um, you can still do good work, but it's a very different process. And I think, um, and so for example, in I found that, you know, in Johns Hopkins, when we teach students, you know, it's very important that we give them these venues to present things and to communicate what they've done and to describe what they've done and to, and to you know, to think about it. Because I think it, the act of talking and the act of kind of presenting more generally is a different kind of analytic process and allows you to understand, you know, am I doing something that makes sense? Does it make sense to other people? And so I think it's a critical part just to, in, in your own kind of thought process. The other thing that's important, I think, with communication and to, and is is to kind of is being able to understand the person or the people that you're communicating to, and so I think part of a successful data analysis or data a data science project is understanding what the audience already knows, what they don't know, and presenting to them something that they will find interesting and they will find useful. Absolutely, and and understanding that you need to develop or find common ground in a common language. I think. Right. And that's very dependent on the audience. I mean, I think there's a tendency to think that an analysis can stand alone and it can be either good or bad by itself. But I think a lot of the quality of analysis depends on the analyst's you know, understanding of the audience and, and presenting it in an appropriate way. So what does the future of, of data science and, and statistics look like to you? <laughs> Do you want that in one sentence or two? <laughs> I'll give you three. Okay. Oh, wow. That's like a dissertation. Yeah, exactly. Um, We've got a committee here. I think it's, um, you know, it's very, uh, it depends on who you are. It's, I think it's very bright if you're going to be, if you're entering this field. I mean, I think the, the incorporation of data into decision-making in all areas of work, whether it's business, government, academia, whatever, is, is, still, is still kind of increasing. And, and I think people are still understanding its value. I think a lot of kind of the, the kind of low hanging fruit type stuff has been is in some sense gone. Um, and so, you know, the, the kind of money ball scenarios where there's a lot of, where there's kind of obvious inefficiencies that can be taken advantage of by using data are kind of quickly going away. But nevertheless, I think the importance of using data decision making and, and, and more importantly of collecting data is go, is still increasing. And I think over time there's going to be, we're going to see a greater emphasis on how we collect data, 
the quality of that data and how we the nature of we ask of asking a certain type of question can affect the data i think the early stages of this kind of trend have been focused on you know all this there's all this data that's out there and we should just quote unquote use it but i think as we go forward there will be a greater emphasis on kind of thinking about how we collect the data and spending more time on kind of asking the right question yeah and how we document the, the data and uh how we how we think about da- data lineage and all all of these things and data ethics as well yeah, I think there's a I think there's a kind of a very large conversation that needs to be had going forward on what are the limits of what we can do with data and and what are the kind of what are the kind of ethical guidelines that we need to kind of send, that we need to kind of agree on as a community as a society. That I think largely has not occurred, but it will have to at some point. And so you mentioned something which I which I find very intriguing: the incorporation of data into decision making. And we see this happening at, at more and more levels in in society and and in businesses. But part of this going forward will involve people understanding data uh, better or speaking the language of data. And I suppose I'm really speaking to a form of data literacy or, or data fluency there, which uh, a lot of people think is a skill or a, a form of knowledge reserved for the few. Uh, and I was wondering uh, how, how you feel about that. Well, I don't think it's something that's for the few. I think there are a variety of levels at which we can think about data literacy and not everyone needs to be able to fit a machine learning model. I think there could be a greater emphasis on training, particularly at the maybe at the earlier ages of education, on thinking about evidence, thinking about the interpretation of evidence. Uh, and this can be done at a very simple level or it can be done at a very complex level. And I think it should be done at all those levels. And so I think it, there's going to be an increased need to kind of understand kind of what what kind of what qualifies as evidence, how is data being used, and and how do we separate kind of the interpretation of that in terms of the decision-making from kind of what the what, what is the evidence in, in data. So I think we don't necessarily get a lot of education or training in that at the moment as in the earlier eight stages, but I think it will eventually kind of infiltrate down um, in, as be, to become a kind of a core skill like reading and writing and those kinds of things. I think so. And presumably one one part, one place it could o- occupy is in a math math curriculum uh, at high school. It could be in a lot of other c- curricula as well. But I honestly feel there are very strong arguments for replacing certain parts of math curricula, such as calculus. I mean, the amount of integrals that I had to perform at, at an early age should, could be replaced with, with, with learning about uh, data and, and the basics of probability and, and, and this type of stuff. Why would you want to get rid of integrals? Uh, you didn't enjoy that part. I, I loved it, but the amount that I that, that I had to do was, um, I think, I mean, you know, if I had become a physicist or an engineer, it would have been incredibly important. But I think the the strength of the emphasis on calculus at, at high school is perhaps un- unnecessary these days. I think you know, I think the the advantage of of, of kind of building in data science type education at an early stage is that it allows. I think it gives people an opportunity to kind of to do something to create something at an early stage that's kind of interesting and i think it's interesting in a very different way than mathematics is i think interesting mathematics is in some sense is interesting almost like uh, you know like an art mm. or you know in terms of or in terms of its you know kind of beauty but i think the data science is interesting in a way that allows people to kind of create things to build things um and it can be very attractive and if we're to teach people data science or data analysis or thinking in terms of data, data literacy, data fluency today, uh, we'd, we'd teach them programming skills as well, right? 
Yeah, I think uh, obviously I think programming skills are important to the kind of active data analysis. It's not 100% clear to me at what point it's essential to introduce that. Um, because one of the things that I'm kind of interested in now is, you know, I don't think we have a, I don't think we have a perfect system for teaching the art of data analysis uh, yet, because I don't think that we don't have a lot of, we don't have a really, I don't think we have a great formal framework for teaching people data analysis and for understanding what, what makes for successful data analysis and what kind of makes for, for failures, you know? And I think, um, because a lot of what we do with data analysis now is essentially in terms of training is, you know, here, just watch me while I analyze the data and learn from kind of the things that I do. And that's how we, for example, teach PhD students. And it's kind of a fuzzy thing. We don't have a great formal framework for saying, here are the, the components of a data analysis and what to do and what not to do. I think that requires a bit more understanding. And I think it does. it's something that's independent of, say, programming languages and tools. So what does make for good data analysis in, in your mind? Uh, that's a qu- Honestly, that's a question that it's, it's difficult to answer. And I think one of the reasons um, is because it's not, I don't think it's, an, it's something that is inherent to a data analysis. And, and the key problem, of course, is that there are always people involved in data analysis, right? People are always the problem, right? And I think there are people who ask the questions, there are people who kind of receive the answers. And the successful of a, an analysis depends on the people involved. And so it's, I think one of the things, you talked about the future of data science. I think one of the issues that I think will be coming, that will come up in the future is that there's a a lot of interest in kind of automation and kind of mechanizing data analysis. And I think there's, there's a thought that there's a lot of money to be made in that in doing so. But I think fundamentally data analysis is this kind of human enterprise and people come up with the questions and people come up with, and people act on the answers. And so it's difficult to say, what makes to kind of universally say that an, that a given data analysis is successful or not, uh, because it depends on all these kind of human elements. So then, how would you go about teaching good good data analysis? Well, I think so. I think that you have to think about well, what are the basic principles that people rely on to say, okay, this, for example, if someone says this person is a great data analyst, what what do they mean by that? You know, what are the qualities of that person? behavior that make them great versus say another person and i think a big component uh, and there's certainly others is that if someone does a data analysis and you trust that the analysis is well done then that person is a good data analysis so there's a sense of which you trust that person you trust the work that was done and you trust that there aren't any hidden elements that you can't see in the data and so anything that that, a, that an analyst does to say to get you to trust that the results I think, uh, makes for a good data analysis. And so building that kind of trust is really important. And I think probably communication and, and different types of language is is one way to build this type of trust, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think if, pe- if people are receiving kind of the results of an analysis and they're communicated in a way that they understand using language that they understand, uh, they will accept it more willingly, I think, than if you just kind of throw a bunch of jargon at them. So we spoke uh, briefly about how uh, when actually doing data analysis or teaching practical data analysis, uh, the modern way to do it is using using programming languages. I, I suppose this is somewhat of a loaded question, but w- what programming language would you choose to teach? <laughs> well, <laughs> there's so many choices out there. But I mean, I think it depends a lot on what you're trying to do. If you're, I think if you're trying to do data analysis, I, th- I still think that R is a great language for that. I think it's designed with that in mind. But there are other, there are other great languages, I think, for 
for other purposes. And particularly, I think if you're in, trying to integrate with with other with lots of other tools, tools you know, languages like Python might be better for that. Um, it depends on the environment. It depends on kind of what you're trying to do. And I don't think that it's an either or type of question. But of course, people are limited. Most well, I'm limited. I know in terms of what I can do at any given time, um, and so I can't focus on five different languages at once. But I do think that R is a great language for data analysis, and it has only gotten greater over time in terms of the community, in terms of the packages available, and the capabilities. Absolutely, the community is incredible. Also, the ability to to write documents with with it as well, to write kind of data analysis narratives. Absolutely, that has changed dramatically since I've been using R and it's and obviously for the better. And I think the ability to do reproducible work, to kind of write documents where there's code and there's data and there's results, uh, it's just, it's a fantastic feature of R. Let's now jump into a segment called Rich, Famous and Popular with Greg Wilson, who wrangles instructor training at DataCamp. Hi, Greg. G'day. What do you have for us today, Greg? Well, to be honest, what I have today is a little bit of heresy. I believe that 10 years from now, most people who are doing data science will be doing it in JavaScript or in some strongly typed derivative like TypeScript. Are you serious? Yep. I don't think R and Python will go away or that the people that are using them now will wake up one day and switch languages. What I think is going to happen instead is that as people who are already programming start doing more statistics and data analytics, they're going to choose to do it in the language they already know. And these days, no matter what else programmers use, they eventually have to learn JavaScript. Once you venture outside scientific computing and look at the other 99% of programming, it's everyone's other language or even their first language. I simply can't see a future in which those programmers choose a single purpose immature language like Julia that doesn't have all the non-numerical libraries they need over one they already have to master to create websites or mobile applications, or even server-side applications that already has a gazillion libraries. And with major players like Microsoft, Google, and Facebook all working hard to make general-purpose JavaScript faster, it's going to be more and more difficult for niche players to keep up. But JavaScript doesn't really have any numerical libraries, does it? No, but that would actually now be relatively straightforward to fix. Node.js is easily the most popular desktop ecosystem for JavaScript development, and it has a pretty clean story for integrating external libraries written in other languages. I think it would only take a few weeks to take the core of NumPy and make it callable from JavaScript. That would just be a base. I mean, you'd have to build the equivalent of SciPy, and you'd probably want a few syntax extensions for array indexing. But we're going to have to do all of that anyway for any new language. Plus, whatever is developed now for the desktop will be able to run within a year in the browser using WebAssembly. So, do you really think this is going to happen? <laughs> Hell if I know. I've been wrong much more often than I've been right. But when I first got involved in high-performance computing back in the 1980s, the landscape was completely dominated by special-purpose hardware. And if you'd asked me, I would have said that would always be the case. We simply didn't realize that for every smart person at Cray or Thinking Machines, there were a hundred or a thousand smart people at Intel focused on making general purpose hardware blazing fast. I think the same is now true of languages. Thank you very much, Greg. If anyone in the audience is interested in telling Greg why he's wrong, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks, Greg. And looking forward to speaking with you again. Thanks, Hugo. Time to get straight back into our chat with Roger Peng. 
some people criticize R for not being a real programming language, and I want you to tell me why they're wrong. So that's an interesting comment, actually. It's something I've thought about a little bit recently. And if you look at the history of kind of R development, I think a lot of the early history of R was driven by this one sentiment, that R is not a real programming language. And so a lot of the development of R in, say, the early 2000s, I think, was oriented towards how can we make R more like a real programming language, a more like, I don't know, C or C++ or something like that, right? And I think what's happened now is that I think it's interesting to see, in my opinion, you know, that kind of idea has has been basically forgotten, not forgotten, but abandoned, basically. It's that we're not, why bother trying to make R like a quote-unquote real programming language? Why don't we make it a language that's great for data analysis, right? And that is like a very different mindset, I think. And I think that's the kind of thinking that leads to things like the tidyverse and, and to things like non-standard evaluation. In term, and so how do we make this a great language for people who want to analyze data really efficiently? Uh, and I think that has oriented the R language in a very different direction. And rather than being focused on making it like a quote-unquote real programming language, we can just have a different set of goals. And so I think my, my, my kind of answer to your question is basically to avoid it and by saying, like, we, who cares if it's like a real programming language or not? But w- what matters now is, like, is it a good programming language? Is it a good language for doing data analysis? I, I actually love that because it does not only not answer the question, but it says, it tells me that I'm asking the wrong question or whoever makes these statements are making statements that are actually inconsequential to the, to the task that R is, R is there to, to do. Uh, and it's changing the conversation in that way. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not just trying to dodge the question. I do think that that was like a way more relevant question, maybe ten years ago. Yeah. Yeah, and your answer uh, is I, the way I, more relevant to answer today. I think. <laughs> no, I, I I mean that. I'm not being facetious at, at all. Yeah, it's just interesting to see how things have really evolved over time. It's just fascinating. As we've discussed, you've done. You're known for a wild array of things. I'd, I'd almost say you're a jack of all trades and, and a master of many from, from working uh, in, in, in research as a professor of biostatistics, from your work in, in, in MOOCs and being a podcaster and, and, and a blogger. And I suppose I, I want to know kind of your approach for getting, just for getting all this stuff, stuff done. And I'm actually reminded of, of a story that I think your, your colleague and collaborator, Jeff Leake, told, uh, and I'm going to get it horribly wrong, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. So one person walks up to a fence and it's, they can't climb over it, but they want to get to the other side, but they can't. So they just walk away. A- another person walks up to the same fence and they're like, okay, I need a ladder. They get a ladder. It's actually too short. So they walk away. And then the third person, which could be yourself uh, or, or Jeff, walks up and looks at the fence and realizes they want to climb over it. And so they throw their hat over it, and then they say, "Okay, now I actually have to figure out how to get to the other side." <laughs> right, so, there's a forcing function. Yeah, exactly. So after that long-winded narrative, how does this relate to your philosophy of just getting stuff done? Well, you know, I think there's a kind of a a way to say this that makes it that's kind of negative, <laughs> which is that I think there's a lot, especially in academia, there's a lot of kind of what you might call gold plating that happens, which is that you know we got to get things perfect, got to be everything's got to be absolutely right. And I think um, in science, there's a lot of that's that can be a good thing. I mean, you don't want you want to don't want to produce shoddy research. But I think you know there's something to be said about getting something out there so that people can see it, people can use it, they can play with it, they can give you feedback on it, and then you can kind of iterate again. And I think 
one of the things that I'm grateful for with working to my, with my colleagues, you know, Jeff League and Brian Caffo and many others, is that there's kind of an error. Uh, they err on the side of let's put something out there. Let's give people, let's let people kind of see what we've got and use what we have and, and see how they react. And sometimes people don't care and then that's fine. And sometimes they really do care. And then we can iterate again. Getting things out the door is just a, a philosophy that we've kind of taken on aggressively, I would say, and not kind of dwelling on is everything perfect? Is everything just right? And I think, um, that, you know, has pluses and minuses. Obviously <laughs> it's not. It's not like the best approach, uh, but it allows us to kind of play with a lot of different things. And I think our my personality likes to kind of do lots of different things and to see what works and to try to learn new things as we go. And so that's kind of, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I enjoyed like learning about video editing, you know, when doing these MOOCs and um, with podcasting, I'm learning about audio. And I think it allows me to learn lots of different things and that gets me excited and gets me motivated to do it. And so... And so not, and so I think, and putting things out there and seeing people's reaction to them is really important. It's a very, it's a real learning experience. And so that kind of helps to kind of move things along, I think. I'd love to hear more about the reactions to the MOOCs, because I'm sure by this point, you actually have so many data points. How, how many people have you had through the MOOCs? I think, I mean, there's a number of people enrolled through one of our courses. It's upwards of maybe five or six million at this point, I think. That's incredible. And, th- and thousands of people who have kind of completed the whole sequence. So it's, you know, I think in terms of reactions, it's it's more or less, if you can think of a possible reaction, we've gotten mm-hmm. it. It's just, <laughs> and that's the, in some sense, the beauty of the MOOCs. I mean, I think we have a, such a huge spectrum of people um, taking these courses. And it's it's a little bit all, and the reaction is kind of all over the map. It's great for some people. It's not great for some people. It's, you know, people uh, enjoy it. Some people like yeah, we've gotten all kinds of kind of comments about our voices and our videos and the quality of the audio and things like that. And some people like Jeff's voice and some people like my voice, you know, like it's just, it's just, it's kind of it's sometimes kind of humorous to see the, the feedback. But yeah, so I mean, it's, it's kind of all over the place. And I think it's one of the challenging things that we learned early on is not to, to react to every single comment, right? Because I think if you react to every single thing, you'll just be, you know, be hit back and forth like a hockey puck, you know? And so you have to kind of sit back and wait and kind of digest everything that comes in and see, okay, what are the major focuses? What are the major issues that we can, and just kind of distill that a little bit because with these, with so many people taking the courses, the the feedback is just all over the place. Absolutely. We see something similar at data camp and I've, I've had to become slightly more robust with respect to my sensitivities concerning what people will say about me. My all time favorite though, is someone who, cause I have a big beard. Someone's, someone said, Hugo turns data science into game of thrones. (laughs) <laughs> yeah which is, which is my favorite but have, have you is are there any lessons you've learned about um actual teaching practices or about learning practices uh about you know the types of mistakes people make when learning r or learning data analysis or anything along these lines yeah i mean i think we learned a lot about teaching r and and, and how frankly it's kind of an, how annoying it can be to teach r <laughs> um and i think um you know, the, a lot of the recent developments in R have, have changed to kind of make that better. And I think one of the things that I personally learned is the importance of kind of getting people to kind of do something that's like not necessarily world changing, but is very concrete and very kind of satisfying early on in the process. Yeah. I think um, whether that's, you know, making a plot or building a package or, uh, you know, building some app or something like that, you know, just getting something, getting people some sort of like, okay, I can do 
a little thing and therefore I can do the big thing. But if you just go for the big thing right off the bat, it can be frustrating for people, I think. And so it's, um, that's one thing that I learned, the kind of staging and incrementalism in the, on, in the MOOCs has something that I learned. And I think even, it, it, I think it's very different. Also, the other thing I learned is very different from teaching in person in class uh, where you're doing a live lecture and that kind of thing. I don't think there's one that's better or the other. I, it's just such a different skill. And the, one of the things I often talk about is like, you know, the, the teaching in class is kind of like the theater and teaching in on a MOOC is like television, you know, and, and it's not just because of the literal kind of thing, but it's like it, the MOOC is very small scale. You can do things on a much more finer grain, whereas like teaching in the lectures is like it's like, you know, everything's a little bit bigger and it's longer and, you know, it's an hour and a half and things like that. And so this just kind of the skills in terms of teaching a class on one sitting versus the other, I had, we had to kind of learn very quickly. Yeah. And, and you mentioned that R can be difficult to teach and difficult for people to learn. And you alluded to the fact that this is changing in a, a certain number of respects. Is part of this due to the tidyverse? It, it absolutely is. And also, I think it's, but generally speaking, I think there's a recognition that not everyone coming into R is a programmer. And so the idea that we're just going to use programming concepts to teach R is not sufficient because not everyone coming in is going to have that kind of background baseline skill. And so I think the tidyverse has pl- addressed that concern by kind of making it, as I said before, kind of a more of a data analysis language. And I think, you know, when we started the MOOCs on Coursera, it was in kind of 2012, 2013, and a lot of the tidyverse had not yet been written. Um, and so it's, um, we didn't incorporate a lot of it <laughs> in the courses. And it's just funny to see now. I mean, I think people were like, well, how come you're not talking about this thing that hadn't been developed yet? <laughs> and so it's, um, we've tried to incorporate it in future iterations or later iterations, but it, you know, it was at the time it wasn't really available. So it was in fact, I think harder to teach earlier on than it was, than it, I think if we were to do everything now, uh, it would be, we would do it in a very different way. And that's something we're experimenting with at, at, at DataCamp. Dave Robinson has recently launched an intro to Tidyverse course, which doesn't presume any programming knowledge, but he gets you to import a data set straight away. Uh, it's the Gapminder data set, and then start getting out uh, basic results and using uh, ggplot to, to get out some plots almost immediately instead of going through for loops and printing ints to, to console or whatever it may be. Yeah, no, I, mean, I think frankly, before the tidyverse, you, you you couldn't, you just couldn't do that. Like, if you wanted to do the exact same, if you wanted to create that exact same output, you would have to know about subsetting, you and you know, or you would know have to know about looping or so, you know, just because just in order to get to that point. And so the tidyverse tools have really kind of minimized that kind of overhead uh, so to get you to the kind of that early these early wins. Yeah. So I think it's it's great that I think I think data camp's a great vehicle for that because also it, it kind of obviates the need for for complex setup processes you know like installing software and that kind of stuff so i think it's great it's great for just getting people to that first quick for win, sure you know? so what's one of your favorite data science techniques or, or methodologies i know that's probably like asking you which is your favorite child but we'll avoid that question <laughs> what's something you really enjoy doing well i do have a favorite child but i only have one okay, there you question, go. right so <laughs> I, so I, I frankly, my my favorite tool is just a simple scatter plot. I think plotting is just it can be it's so revealing, and it's not something that frankly I see a lot done. And and I think the reason why I thought about why this is the case, and I think the reason is because it, it's one of those tools that really instills trust. I think in the people who receive the plot because they feel like they can see the data, they feel like they can understand you know 
if you have a model that's kind of overlaid, they know what, how the data kind of goes into the model. They can reason about the data. And I think um, it's one of those really critical things for building trust. I think, I, obviously, I do, I've used machine learning tools. I've used all these kinds of sophisticated tools. And I've seen just both, being on both sides of the table in terms of giving people the output and receiving the output, when you see uh, output from models and things like that, it's very, it, it, it can be very useful. But often I think there's a sense of like, well, there could be something that's missing here and I just don't see it, right? But I think you know, plotting, just you know, scatter plotting or whatever it happens to be, it gives you that sense that I'm, I, it can be misleading, no, no doubt, but it gives you more of a sense that I'm seeing what, I'm seeing how the data kind of feed into the answer. And I think it's just a critically important tool. And, and how would you do a scatter plot in R? <laughs> um, so I think these days uh, it, it'd be, Probably be Qplot. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, I, have, I have many years of just doing plot XY. <laughs> so. Well, I think that's a, that's a good place to, to leave it because I definitely don't want to get into preferences between plot and, and, and Qplot at, at, at the moment. Um, don't want to open that, yeah. that, that can of worms. So, Roger, we, we've come to the end of our chat, and I was just wondering if you uh, have a final call to action for all the aspiring and, and well-seasoned data scientists out there. <laughs> for the well-seasoned ones, I'm not sure, but uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it's, I think for the people who may be aspiring to get into the area, uh, definitely there's no better time to do it. There's the, the tooling and the, and the and the kind of information that's out there is just so abundant. And, and most importantly, I think it's just a fantastic community of people and, uh, and, and who, who will be, who can help you along to give you resources to kind of get you going. And so, um, I, I just, I'm very, it's a very exciting area. I'm very excited to be just a small part of it. And I, I'm curious, I'm just excited to see where it goes forward. So. I couldn't agree more. Roger, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. Thanks for joining our conversation with Roger about data science and the environment. We saw several challenges facing the field of environmental biostatistics, such as the preponderance of complex and messy data sets, how the signal is generally weak, and the difficulty of doing controlled experiments. We also saw the essential roles that data science has to play in this field, such as linking complex data sets together, building prediction models, quantifying uncertainty, and communicating evidence and results to the public. Make sure to check out our next episode, a conversation with Adam Kelleher, Principal Data Scientist at BuzzFeed and Adjunct Professor at Columbia University. I'll be chatting with Adam about his work at BuzzFeed and, more generally, the impact of data science on the modern digital media landscape. I'm your host, Hugo Bown-Anderson. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugo Bown and DataCamp at DataCamp. You can find all our episodes and show notes at datacamp.com slash community slash podcast. Yeah.